You are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you are safe and well as you tune in this week. Well, this week we're looking at sustainable energy. What is it? What qualifies as it? But first things first, plastics. And we're joined by Lindsay O'Connell of Voice Ireland. You're very welcome. Thank you too, Ashton. Hello. Now, Lindsay, over the last year, we've been able to recycle more types of plastics at home, the more the scrunchable ones, for want of a better term. And then when I saw Voice Ireland's latest social media post, it definitely caught me by surprise. And I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. So it turns out, as I understand it, that even though we are improving and recycling more, an awful lot of these recyclable plastics are actually going to be incinerated. Can you talk us through the problems as you see it? Yeah, of course. Um, So what we found was through researching the latest EPA uh, report is that 71% of plastics are actually going to the incinerator. Um, And if we look at those details, those facts a little bit um, more in detail, this is not just coming from, um, you know, industry waste or anything like that. Any of the two incinerators that work in Ireland only deal with domestic waste, municipal waste. And it looks as if the black bins, all the black bins that we're sending to the waste collectors, and um, 71% um, of the plastics that are in there are going to the incinerator. Now, the reason that they're doing that is because they're being put into the wrong bin or they've been contaminated and maybe somebody has put all the bright things into their green bin but then somebody has thrown in a pot uh, a yogurt pot and they haven't cleaned it out properly and technically that would be looked on as a contaminated bin so in Ireland what we have is a huge problem with bin contamination and maybe not the right amount of education for people to know what goes in what bin so we think contamination is a huge problem so in that case all of that waste would just go straight to either landfill or to incineration and it's very disappointing because plastics as we know um, have a very high rate of being able to be recycled if put in the right bin, if kept clean, dry and loose, and if sent to the correct places. But the, the problem that we have, Ashling, and what the biggest problem that we're trying to highlight is that the incinerators themselves um, need these plastics. So what we've caught ourselves into is a vicious cycle. Um, and that's really what we were trying to highlight with that post. Okay, Lindsay, so we accept that there is an education, perhaps even a communications problem on this, that we are recycling more. Okay, we're probably not recycling as much as we possibly could. But what kind of communication or education exercise do we need? If I I even look at my own family, like in my own house, the recycling services available to me dictate that the recyclable materials go into the green bin and the general waste goes into the black bin, whereas in my mum's house, the recyclable materials go into the blue bin and the general waste goes into the green bin. So it's dependent on where you are in the country and what service you pay for, uh, what colour bin you use. And like even something as simple as that has caused great confusion. And then different companies have different rules. It's very confusing. That's a really good question. Um, just to focus in on the point that you said there, the lack of consistency across labelling and bin labelling. That's a huge issue um, that we've been highlighting for many years. And there's a reason for that. In most countries, the waste collectors would be controlled by the municipal department. So the local public um, bodies, so local councils, would look after bin collection. But in Ireland, that's been privatised out. So we have over 200 uh, waste collector companies that collect 
domestic domestic waste from our households. And they themselves were following guidelines where they can. Um, they have their own bin collection systems. They have their own colour um, labelling and things like that. That can cause a lot of confusion. So what we would always be calling for is consistency across the board. It should be the same label for the same bins. Um, another problem as well is that there's not three bins in every household in Ireland. So in some counties, every you know house has three bins, which is great and the ideal. But in a lot of counties, they don't. So we find a lot of people are putting their food waste into their residual waste bins, their black bins, or contaminating their green bins. And that's a huge problem. So from a policy level and from a, a, a local council level, we could be doing a lot more in making sure that these waste collectors are A, abiding by the same rules, and B, being consistent in their labelling and helping households to be a little bit more conscious conscious of what they're doing. And from the personal thing, what we'd say what people can do is to really just, when you're standing over your bins, take note of what you're doing. Is the plastic and the cardboard and the paper you're putting into your green bin, recyclable bin, is it clean, is it dry, and is it loose? Is it being contaminated by somebody else in your household who isn't singing from the same team tune? As we all know, there are those people in the household that need a little bit more conjoling. There's always um, one, so isn't there? There's always one. There's one in my house too. Um, and there's always the person who's quite into their bins, we find as well. And they're the real, they're the kind of the people that we target with our campaigns as well. Because there's a pride as well. We all have a pride of our home and we want to make sure we're doing the right thing and we all want to contribute towards the right um of um, solutions. So we would say is um, have those conversations at home, ring your waste collector, ask them, am I putting the right thing in the right bin? They have a responsibility to tell us what goes in the right bin too and to make sure that they're doing the right thing. 200 individual waste companies really does seem excessive for a country of our size. And then if they are all doing, you know, what they deem necessary to run their individual businesses, well, then it's no wonder, it seems to me, that there is confusion. So do we need then regulation, colour coding regulated by the local authority or the government to say that, you know what, the general waste is always a black bin, the recycling is always green and the compost is always brown or some level of control over how the message is communicated to members of the public? Because it seems to me that this confusion is caused by the volume of different messages. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. We would definitely need some joint up thinking in this regard. Now, MyWaste.ie is a fantastic resource for people and for businesses, and they provide all the correct labelling that we should be using. But again, there's no real impetus for these local collectors to do these things and to abide by what MyWaste are saying. And it would be great to see some stronger policy in this area. I know with the um, Circular Economy Act that's coming out, the Minister is going to be given a lot more um, authority in terms of levies. So what the minister is going to be doing is putting levies on these waste collectors to make sure that they're not just sending plastics to the incineration, into the incinerator, but they're actually being sent to the right place. Um, waste collection is a, is a very profitable business for these um, for these companies as well, and it provides a lot of business for local communities and local uh, families who are running these businesses. So we are supportive of the fact that um, it is a, you know a workable business for a lot of people. But what we would say is that um, we need a lot more joint of thinking. We need a lot more consistency across the board. And we would like to reduce the amount of waste that has been sent to our incinerators. And unfortunately, the amount of waste that's going there is increasing all of the time. Um, if we look back in 2010, uh, we were, there was only 4% of the municipal waste was being treated in incinerators. And if we look more recently, um, it's gone up to 43%. 
So um, the, we're sending more and more waste to incinerators. The incinerators need more and more waste in order to, to create bigger profits. So incinerators are not the solution that we've all kind of counted on. If anything, we've created a, a solution that's part of a bigger problem. Okay, so say for argument's sake, we get the colour coding sorted out. What then about what can actually be recycled? Is that down to individual recycling companies or are there things, items that we can all be recycling, that we all should be putting in the recycling bin, regardless of what colour it is? So it can depend. Yes, it can vary um, on each waste collector um, as to what's on their recycling list. Now, we do have a national recycling list that these waste collectors have to abide by. But there are particular things that some will allow in your, in your um, residual waste bin, your black bin, and some won't. And so the advice that we would always say is it doesn't matter who your bin collector is, contact them, get them to send you a list. And they should do this anyway, um, to send you a list of what goes in what bin, what they'll accept and what they won't accept. And then you know you're doing the right thing. And why do waste companies have differing rules? Like, is it just, you know, they, they just pick them off the top of their heads or are there practical reasons that they only will recycle certain things? There, there has to be more to it, surely. Sure. Um, so each waste collecting collection business, they would sell the plastics that are coming from your bins to a recycling company. It's usually abroad. Um, or they would um, take some of those materials like aluminium cans and they'd sell them back to the factories that would be able to break them down and turn them into new aluminium cans. So they each have, uh, or they work with incinerators as well, so they each have their own waste recovery plant that they would work with. And they would sell the materials that they collect from your household, divide them up, and try to get the best price for, for what they can get for them. So it can be quite a profitable business. And this is why we saw a little bit of pushback when, from the waste collectors in terms of a deposit return scheme, where we can now go to the shop and return our plastic bottles and aluminium cans and get a deposit back. We were getting a little bit of pushback from our waste collectors because it wasn't within our fair interest for us to take that waste out of our household bins because it was providing such big income for them. So there is a catch-22 in terms of doing the right thing. The waste collectors have to make money and domestic waste can equal a lot of money for them. And who they, depending on who they sell it to as well, their profits will be higher. So we need to make sure that, A, we are collecting as much of the waste as we can and recovering it. So sending it to the recycling, um, not sending it to landfill, not sending it to incineration. We need to cut down on the amount of waste that we're producing as well in this country and making sure that we're not putting too much plastic into our bins, too much um, cardboard. So what we would argue for is instead of having all of these end-of-life solutions that are quite carbon intensive in that once the waste is collected, it has to be transported to these waste facilities, often abroad, to the incinerators where they're burnt down and essentially the carbon is released into the atmosphere. We want to move away from that end-of-life solution and just get rid of all that plastic from the get-go. We shouldn't have it in our bins in the first place where possible. Talk to me then, Lindsay, about composting. I know some people just will not compost. They're terrified of attracting rodents into their home. Uh, To be honest, it's not an option for me, so I don't really think about it. But where I live, it's just not offered. But what should we be putting into the compost bin so that we can do it right and not invite rodents? So it depends. Um, If I come in from my perspective, I moved up to Dublin there a few years ago. And in in my my food bins are collected 
bi-monthly, bi-weekly, sorry, should I say, from my waste collector. And I don't have to worry about vermin and things like that. And I can put any food items into that compost. I can even put, um, if I have like a, a clothes drying machine, the lint from that can go in there. And um, paper can go in there as long as it's not, um, you know, used in the bathroom. Um, and then you know, there's great things that can go into that. that. That thing goes to a composting facility and gets broken down, um, which is great because it's creating uh, compost that's being recycled and it's keeping that food out of the other bins, which is fantastic. Now, in my parents' case, they're down in Cork, and um, they have their own composter at home. What they would do is um, to keep the vermin away, they put no meat or any cooked food into it, so it would be only uncooked uh, fruit and vegetable peelings, that kind of thing that would go into it. And to be honest with everything else, we send it out to the crows um, and it all gets eaten. Um, so it can depend very much on where you're living and it can depend on your, your demands and your needs. And what we would always say is contact your, your, your waste collector. Again, you don't have a food bin. Ask them for a food bin. Put pressure on them. Put pressure on your local councils to get a food bin in your home um, and to get it collected. Because the more we, we, we compost, the better it is. Um, because that food has been broken down being turned into something we can use again and it keeps it out of the other bin. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time to try and explain the difficulties to us here this evening. And it, it is an issue that it seems to me that we do need a bit of leadership and a bit of clarity. Like, it can't be that hard, surely, to explain it in a simple way, to to make things a little bit easier for us. I mean... We have enough to worry about. So simple things like, do you know what? Let's every house in the country get the same recycling coloured bins. Let the 200 companies still work away, but just let's, let's colour code the bins, even with stickers. You wouldn't have to bin them then, bin the bins. Um, and, and just, you know, a list, a simple list, maybe sent out to us as a reminder by email every six months or so, you know, because we're busy and we do forget things and we're human and all of that um, but maybe maybe that's too ambitious of me thanks again for your time Lindsay you're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands103.com I hope you're enjoying the show so far this evening just a note to remind you that I'm always looking for ideas for the show and I'm more than delighted to hear from you. So if you would like to get involved with Let's Go Green or suggest an item for the show, please do go on to midlands103.com, click on the On Air team, click on my name, Ashling O'Rourke, and there you will find a Contact Me Here button which will allow you to send me a quick note. So please do feel free to drop me a line and give me some ideas or even put yourself forward as a guest on the show. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and I'm now joined by Dr Andrew Smith of UCC. Andrew, you are very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Now, Andrew, you are an expert in sustainable energy. So first things first... What is sustainable energy? The challenge we face at the moment is that the things we've been doing for quite a long time are creating a lot of pollution. And that means that we won't be able to carry on as we have been going on. Uh, At the core of sustainability, we have this idea that um, the things we do today to give us a good quality of life shouldn't prevent future generations having the same or better quality of life. And that, that, that's the thing that sustainability tries to capture is, is can, can we have a good quality of life today without making it worse for our descendants in the future? And at the moment, a lot of the sources of energy we're using, like oil and gas 
and coal and peat are putting a lot of pollution into the atmosphere, and that's going to make things worse for future generations. Sustainable energy is a different kind of energy that replaces those that will allow us to have all of the good things today without making it worse for our descendants. And so it's things like uh, solar energy and wind energy and hydro to generate electricity. It, it might be um, uh, biogas, uh, which captures uh, uh, carbon dioxide from the air and then gets burned again and returns the carbon dioxide into the air and we get energy in the meantime. So it's about types of energy that are much cleaner than things we've had in the past. It often involves replacing burning things with uh, electricity from clean sources instead. So uh, instead of cooking with gas, uh, it means cooking with, with electricity on an induction hob. Instead of burning peat in a power station, it means having an offshore wind farm instead. And so that, that's the sort of thing we mean by sustainable energy. Andrew, all of that, in theory, sounds fantastic. But as you know, here in Ireland, we're rather attached to our fossil fuels. And then you'd look at, you know, this region of the Midlands where many homes are heated entirely through fossil fuels, through turf in particular, for many people. And while they might know they should switch over for many householders, it's just going to be far too expensive. Is there any sign of this changeover becoming more affordable for householders? It's, it, it's very challenging and it's very challenging, particularly if, if, if we look at individual householders, because a lot of the things we've been doing in the past, we've designed our houses around them, we've designed our transport systems around them, we've designed our way of life around having cheap fossil fuels without a care for tomorrow. And the problem is that that's stacked up a lot of problems because we haven't been thinking about what, what comes after tomorrow. And now we've got to change all of these things. And some countries started this 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And unfortunately, here, we didn't. And now we're running out of time to make all of those changes. And that means we've got to make them all in quite a short amount of time, around 20 years or so. And then that means replacing all of our cars that use uh, petrol or diesel with, with electric cars. And it means replacing all of these home heating systems that have used turf, that have used gas, that have used uh, kerosene with clean heating systems. And all of this has to happen in the next 20 years. Now, Ireland is one of the worst performers in Europe for uh, uh, sustainable energy in our home heating. And yet we're one of the leaders in the world. In fact, we are the leader in the world in integrating wind power onto the grid. So we're kind of a we're two-speed country here and there are, there are things we're doing very badly at and that we really need to push faster on. And there are other things where we lead the world on. Why is and we that? Just sort of... So... Um, the electricity grid and the regulator have, have been very good at enabling industry to integrate more wind power in, into the grid. So there have been institutions there that have been pushing very strongly at this and doing things that a lot of people, a lot of engineers 20 years ago, things that they said were impossible, that it, you know, we, we get 40% wind energy on the grid. There are times of day, there are moments in time when we've got 75% of the electricity on the grid comes from wind power. 
than their engineer 20 years ago saying that was possible. And Ireland has proved it's possible for the whole world. So there we had institutions which have enabled things to happen. And that's because when you, when you look at the electricity grid, you're only dealing with a small number of companies to make all these things happen. But when we're looking at changing our cars or our home heating systems, then all of a sudden you're having to deal with every home in Ireland. So instead of a few dozen electricity companies, we've got a couple of million homes and we've got five million people. And then making the changes at that scale in every single home is a very difficult thing to do. And just as you said earlier, it's very expensive. Now, we have to find that money from somewhere. And it will be the case for a lot of people. They simply can't afford to do it for themselves. And so the state is going to have to find a way to help them. And there are SEAI grants to help that transformation happen. And I would expect to see those grow in the future because we're not seeing the change fast enough. We're not seeing homes being able to move to being better insulated, being warmer and being more comfortable and being heated by cleaner sources. But all of this has happened. We don't have a choice in this anymore. We're, we're destroying our children's and our grandchildren's future. And we, none of us want that. That's a terrible state to be in. And it has to stop now. All countries of the world are traveling in the same direction. It's not just us being expected to do this. There's 196 countries have all signed up to agree to do this transition over the next 25 to 30 years. And so, so it, it's not about Ireland being singled out in any way. It's about us doing our share in the same way as all the other countries are. Andrew, there's quite a lot of talk at the moment about people being encouraged to take out loans to do the kind of work you're talking about on their homes to help them be fueled and powered through sustainable sources. But most people don't want to get into more debt. Many retired people won't be eligible for a bank loan because they're no longer in employment and their pension might not support a loan. Is there any sign of these costs being covered entirely by the government? I, I think I suspect we're going to have to do that because different households face very different circumstances and there simply won't be one policy which works for all, all two million homes and we all have to make this change. Uh, I've, I've, I've got a oil boiler, a kerosene boiler heating the home in, in, where, where I'm standing right now and we, we all have to make this change and you're right that for some people the loan will work and for other people it'll be entirely unsuitable and, and that's a matter of people talking to their local deputies, their representatives, and, and between us, I, I think we will work out systems to do it and different payment mechanisms. It, it might be, for example, that um, instead of a loan, there's a change made to the electricity bill. So the, the heating system is put in, but then it's taken out of the electricity bill as a, as a payback mechanism over the next 20 or 30 years. And that would live with the home. So maybe someone moves out and the new buyer gets it, but the new buyer is getting the benefit of that clean heating system and they've probably got an insulated home as well. And so they'd, they'd pay back through the electricity bill rather than having to pay back a loan through the bank. So there's a bunch of different mechanisms. And as a country, as a whole, we're quite a prosperous country now. We, we have a quite a high national income, so we can afford this change. Well, the money isn't necessarily in the right place at the right time at the moment. And, and only government is in a, in a place to change that and make it happen. 
Andrew, hydrogen, I remember a couple of years back, people talking about it as, as if it was the, the, the solution to, to all our problems. Are there any developments there that might give us some sense of hope? Might hydrogen be useful for us? There are, and uh, without a doubt, hydrogen, clean hydrogen, at the moment we only have dirty hydrogen, and dirty hydrogen is a very big industry. It's a backbone of the fertilizer industry. And it, it, it's used in many different sectors around the world. So clean hydrogen in the future will be a very big thing. However, it's only useful in very specific cases. So it, it's not the sort of thing we can use um, everywhere at the same time for, for all things because it's just not well suited for some of these jobs. So for heating homes, it's very bad at that. And that's, not, that's not the sort of thing we're going to use it for. So put into cars, it's very bad at that, and we won't be using it for that. However, we will be continuing to use it um, for fertilizers, and we will move from dirty hydrogen to clean hydrogen. We will probably move a lot of steel production. Now, we don't, we don't do a lot of that in Ireland at all, but around the world. Ireland uses a lot of steel from around the world. At the moment, we use coal and, and uh, coke to make steel. And that is somewhere where clean hydrogen has a big role to play in, in cleaning up steel production. So there's a, there's a great future for clean hydrogen. And there are lots of companies innovating and bringing in ways to use clean hydrogen. So that there are pilot steel plants around the world now using hydrogen instead of coal. So we are seeing its role grow. But there are some places where we're seeing it we thought 15 or 20 years ago, hydrogen might have a very big role to play in transport. And now that's shrinking year by year as electric vehicles get better and better. And there's less and less of a role for hydrogen to play there. There are some sectors where it's grown and has a very bright future. There are other sectors, um, road transport and home heating, close off completely. On electric cars, there would be some people who would argue that they're not as good for the environment as they are suggested to be, that taking lithium, mining lithium and other minerals for these batteries, which is required to to fuel these electric vehicles, is in fact doing more harm than good to the environment. And some people are postponing investing in electric or hybrid vehicles. So how confident can we be that it's not doing serious damage? Yeah, I mean, sadly, there's nothing we can do that doesn't have some impact on the world. So there are no perfect solutions here. What we're looking for is very good solutions to replace bad solutions. And so what what we see with things like electric cars is, yes, uh, to put electric cars around the world will require uh, the mining and extraction of millions of tons of raw material, but they will replace the mining and extraction of billions of tons of fossil fuels. So Yes, lithium batteries and uh, electric car production has an environmental impact, but it's much, much lower than the things we're replacing. So they're not perfect by any means, but they're much better. So it's definitely an upgrade. And once people get electric cars, we find that they enjoy the driving experience so much more and their maintenance costs are so much lower. They they never think of going back. You know, it's just a better experience to drive an electric car. So I understand why some people have concerns there. But at the same time, this is the best option we've got if you absolutely need a car. 
Now, for those people who live in towns and cities and have the luxury of being able to live close to where they work, they might find that uh, owning a car is an expense they no longer need. So I, I can whiz around Cork City on an electric bike and I, I don't need a car to get to work or to the shops or anything like that. That's not true of everyone. That's absolutely not going to be the case in rural areas. But in the cities, I think we'll start to see people asking, do they really need a car or does, it, does the home really need a second car? And is, is something like an electric bike a, a better option? So there's lots of different ways to chisel away at these uh, problems. And there's a whole bunch of different solutions that we'll be applying at the same time to ensure that uh, our descendants have a, can have as good a quality of life as we've got now. Speaking of public transport, Andrew, when I first saw the headlines or the announcement about Athlone becoming the first town in Ireland to have an entirely uh, electrically charged public transport service in in the local buses there, I I was shocked that we still hadn't gotten there. And it did disappoint me. But should I take the positive out of it and say, well, you know, maybe it is a sign that there are efforts going on behind the scenes to get us, however slowly, towards a more sustainably fueled public transport system. Absolutely. And um, this is something we've seen for the first time um, ever in Ireland, is, is this kind of broad movement across government to really make this transition happen. And, and, and part of it is... Um, the groundswell of opinion within the country and people talking to their deputies about, you know, we, we don't want to be seen as one of the worst polluters per capita in the world anymore. We, we, we want to clean up our act. And part of it is the commitments and the legal obligations we have to the European Union, where we're, um, the rules and directives there, meaning that we have to clean up a lot of our home industry. Partly it's the commitments we make to the world at the, at the COP, conferences and and partly it's just that the technology is getting so much better it would be daft to not do these things. Andrew if you did have the ear of the well either the Minister for the Environment or indeed on Taoiseach what would your ask be for from them for 2023? I think we need a real um, leadership on the national discussion these things we've talked about now about the huge change that society has to go through over the next 20 years, it has to be a national conversation. It can't happen unless we're all part of it. And what we saw in COVID was that the country could come together under extreme circumstances, change what we have been doing for the sake of longer-term interests, and, and all pull together to change things in the right direction and to make things better for us. And that's exactly what we need to do with moving to a, a sustainable economy. And I think it is very much down to, to the Taoiseach to lead that national conversation and to provide guidance about where we're going and why we're going there and how we're going to do it and, and who will pay for it and how we pay for it. That, that's what I look for from the Taoiseach is that kind of, that, 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 that real leadership role of, as a country, we can do this and we will be better for having doing it. And this is, this is the path we're going to follow. 
Well, Dr. Andrew Smith of UCC, thank you so much for your time today. It's been very interesting speaking with you. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands103.com. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's episode of the show. Don't forget, you can get in contact with me directly on midlands103.com. Just look up my name, Ashling O'Rourke, on the website there. And there's a handy link where you can send me a message directly through it. Of course, we are also available on your preferred podcast app. We're on Spotify, Google and indeed Apple Podcasts. So if you can't listen in to Let's Go Green of a Monday night, just tune into your preferred podcast app and you will find us there. I hope you have a great week and we'll be back same time next week with another episode of Let's Go Green.